0: So tonight we are going over Revelation chapter 15 and 16. This uh, constitutes another vision within the book, the fifth vision uh, specifically. And we are going to look at this and see the parallels of this vision with the previous ones that have already been disclosed to us. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. We'll begin there. And these chapters aren't very long, so we may go ahead and read it. And that way we have, uh, you know, everything in context and everything out in the open of what these particular chapters are containing. And again, the vision that we have here, chapters 15 and 16, are overlapping the previous ones that we have read. And again, seeing those similarities. Remember that throughout the book of Revelation, we're finding that there is this cycle the cycle of visions uh, that is occurring we saw it from chapters 1 to 3 4 to 7 8 to 11 12 to 14 and now 15 to 16 and then next time we'll see it uh, even more so uh, detailed from chapter 17 to 19 and then the very last of course being chapters 20 to 22 so let me go ahead and read this and you can follow along and course i'm reading out of a new american standard bible but go ahead and follow along in your bible and um we'll just start in chapter 15 and we'll read chapters 15 and 16 and i want you to pay attention to what is what is being said here the things that are being contained within uh these two chapters so let's go ahead and begin revelation chapter 15 beginning in verse 1 (laughs) Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image in the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with the fierce heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up. So that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out into the kings which go out to the kings of the whole world, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked, and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. So, again, we're having some parallels that are going to be uh, demonstrated here of these last seven bowls now these now remember these bowls are being poured out during the same time frame that the trumpets are going on and that the seals are going on remember each vision is speaking of the time in between the first and second coming of Christ the period of persecution in, in during the time of now uh, for example the time when the church is struggling uh, and we see that, of course, all over the globe with many of our brothers and sisters in Christ being uh, tortured, being killed, uh, being persecuted greatly uh, just because they bear the name Christian. These seven bowls are parallel to the seven trumpets. Now, remember, trumpets are judgments that warn. These particular judgments that are described here in these chapters, these are um, the wrath of God being poured out, final judgments. Uh, he says in the first verse, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Uh, so the idea of the bold judgments is that uh, the, these are the final judgments of God. And again, you see the parallels. that throughout the dispensation in between the first and the second coming of Christ, that you have the Lord who's not only using his creation in order to warn sinners to repent, but when the time comes that, he, that there is no more time to repent uh, before God, that he pours out his wrath on them, final wrath where there is no possibility of repenting thereafter. These judgments here are the the finality uh, that God's spirit is done striving with man. And now the time has come for each individual person, uh, if you want to look at it that way, when God is then going to take this person out of this world where they will then endure the very wrath of God. But as you get towards the end of this as well, not only are you seeing these judgments that are going on throughout the dispensation, and I'm using that term loosely, not like dispensationalist, but just during this, this time in between the first and second coming of Christ, that by the time you get to the end of this vision, when you have this great battle that's going to occur, referred to as Armageddon, that you have actual final judgment. When everything is done, it's finished, it is, it is no more. And again we're seeing parallels chapter 15 opens up in a very similar way as chapter 12 does we remember there in chapter 12 when the Apostle John says a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the Sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars and she was with child she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth this great sign appeared in chapter 12 and then here in chapter 15 then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had the seven last plagues. Now, it's very interesting to me, and I love what Joel Beakey had said about how, um, how the flow of the book of Revelation goes. For Many times we find, of course, the, the wrath of God being described upon sinners, uh, his, his wrath being poured out upon them. But we also see these times in there when you have a break in everything, where you see all the struggle and the pain and, and the, uh, the judgments and everything on the earth. But then throughout the book of Revelation in numerous places, then you get to see this, this period of time in heaven where the saints are enjoying the wonderful bliss of being with our Lord. Um, and this occurs again just throughout the entire book that you have a break, a pause, um, when you you get to go back and see what's going on in heaven. And then once you see what's going on in heaven and you see the worship that's going on in heaven and you see uh, the the state of the saints in heaven, then it takes you back to the earth and then you see the struggle again of the church and then you see once again the wrath of God being poured out. That seems to be uh, something that occurs over and over again, which is... um, Pretty amazing, actually, of, of how that occurs. But Joe Beeky is the one who had pointed that out. <clears throat> so here we have <clears throat> this this scene in heaven. This, this sign appears in heaven. Great and marvelous. Seven angels who have the seven last plagues, the seven bowls. John sees something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And depending on what theologian you read, you're going to have a variety of opinions on this. What does it mean that this sea of glass, which is usually described as clear, it's transparent, now being mixed with fire? Is it representing perhaps though the saints in heaven are enjoying the, the, the great joy of being in the presence of God, yet the saints that are on earth are enduring various persecutions, which is symbolized by the fire? Possibly. But it also could very well represent, which it often does, that you have this sea of glass representing the nations and, of course, mixed with fire being the judgment of God, which is being poured out upon them. So you have this multitude of the saints that are... um, that that had overcome the beast and his image and the number of his name, and they're standing on the sea of glass, and they're holding harps of God. You have this this beautiful scene of the saints in heaven, the, the church triumphant. Now, remember, in theology, you study the different aspects of the church. You study the church militant and the church triumphant. The church triumphant are those who have gone on to be with the Lord during this present time, that we know that when someone who is in Christ... When they leave this world at this particular time they go home to be with Christ they are ruling and reigning with Christ during this time and we'll get to that once we get to Revelation 20 that they are reigning with Christ they are now in a state of joy of peace no more sickness uh, no more pain and suffering no more trials no more sin they are in what's referred to as the intermediate state they are in that state of perfection uh, though the culmination of their salvation has not occurred yet, but they are in that state of perfection, now in the presence of God, and they are referred to as the church triumphant. At the very same time, you have on the earth those like us that are still here, that struggle every day with sin and temptation and with uh, various uh, slanderings and, and you know backbitings and, and all the things that occur because you're a Christian. And then the things that just occur because we have to still contend with ourselves uh, of our sinful, sinful side, the remnant of the old man. We are the church triumphant because or the church militant because we are struggling. We are fighting, uh, as Paul describes a number of times, like the weapons of our warfare are not uh, carnal, but mighty through God. And we have the armor of God being described. So there's warfare going on uh, if you're still here you're referred to as the church militant so you get to see this vision of those that are in heaven who are with Christ who are rejoicing in the presence of Christ they have their harps which are also described earlier in Revelation and they sing the song of Moses the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb now if you remember the song of Moses was sung after the children of Israel come out of Egypt and they did so by the Lord, of course, uh, bringing upon Egypt the ten plagues that he did, and the last being the death of all the firstborn. And if you had the, the blood of the lamb over your doorpost and all that, that the angel of death would pass by. Uh, and so, hence the name Passover uh, was one of the great feasts of, um, of Israel. But after they come out of Egypt, and of course they get to the Red Sea, the Lord splits the Red Sea, they walk over on dry land and uh, Pharaoh's armies are in pursuit behind them. Well, after the children of Israel cross and then the Lord brings the seas back over the Egyptians and drowns them, they sing the song of Moses and they are, try- they are rejoicing before the Lord uh, of what the Lord had done in saving them and delivering them. And <clears throat> you have that song, or a song being referred to as the song of Moses and of the lamb being sung in the presence of God by the church triumphant as they are in heaven, experiencing the wonderful joy of being in that state. They say great and marvelous are your works. O Lord, the almighty righteous and true are your ways. King of the nations who will not fear. O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy for all the nations will come and worship before you for your righteousness. Acts have been revealed again, and we're and see. Here's the thing. Once again, as you're working your way through the book of Revelation, you are finding these instances of yes, judgment on the earth and and persecution on the earth and struggle on the earth. But then you get to step back in a lot of these passages, and you get to see the church in all its glory, in all its triumph, in heaven, ruling and reigning with Christ. And so you get that that time of peace, that time of pause before we go back to what's happening on the earth uh, with the church militant. So they are singing the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and this is significant too because you see how the Lord had conquered the enemies of his people uh, in the Exodus, and here we are finding that the Lord is getting ready to pour out His final judgment upon individuals and culminating in the actual final judgment at the end of this vision where the Lord is once again conquering the peoples, uh, the enemies, uh, excuse me, conquering the enemies of his people. So there is some definite correlation there between what happened in the Exodus and the Lord delivering his people and vanquishing the enemies and also even now where the Lord is doing the same during the present age and then Obviously, when he comes back in final judgment. He says, after these things, after this great time of joy in the presence of God. I looked in the temple of the tabernacle of testimony and heaven was open. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, this is some preparation that is going on. The Lord is getting ready to judge the wicked, and he is doing so using the very same aspects of his creation as what we found within the trumpet judgments. Except now, these are final judgment and again this is going on throughout the present age once again if the this particular vision is opening up very similar as it did in chapter 12 we're finding the correlations of the seven angels uh, having final judgment whereas the seven angels before had warning judgments but it's still going on during the present age there the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments are parallel to each other And if the trumpet judgments are going on during the present age, then obviously the golden, uh, or excuse me, the the wrath of God in the bowls are going on in this present age as well. And remember last time we we described it in this way, because God is using all of his creation in order to judge man. When their time uh, has come, when they are no longer repenting, and now final judgment has come, or... The Lord has sent judgments in various ways, and the wicked did not repent. You know, you think of it like this, and we used this example last time. Think of a a tsunami, for example. A tsunami comes in, and obviously, and let me emphasize this very greatly here. You will obviously hear people say when a great uh, calamity occurs, whether it's a natural disaster or some other kind of a calamity, that, well, this wasn't the Lord's will that this happened. Well, if it wasn't the Lord's will that it happened, it would not have happened. But when you go to the book of Job and you look in the Psalms and all of that, you have uh, this, this view of God that God is the one who is, who is controlling all the storehouses and the rain and the hail and the lightning and all of that. It is God who is controlling the whirlwinds. It is God who tells the sea where to stop and all of that. So you have the Lord is absolutely in control over every aspect of his creation, including even the great calamities that occur in in our lifetime and then before and all of that all the great things that have ever occurred uh, on the earth great calamities natural disasters have all been controlled by god he is the sovereign one so think of it like this you have a tsunami that comes in and uh you have a number of people who are, are uh, victims of this in the sense that they they were caught up by it but they lived through it and then you have others that perhaps died Uh, within the tsunami as well so you have both being represented there in this one event so for some it could have been a warning you survived this now you better repent or this could happen to you this could have been your death and whereas for others perhaps that was their last before god uh, as far as their um final opportunity in order to repent, and so God brought final judgment on them. Now there is no more opportunity to repent. They are now enduring the wrath of God until their final judgment. So that's just an example of of how that can work and do Christians perish in these things too, obviously. And God has ordained the means of which he will use in order to bring his children home. But for the Christian, there is no warning judgment. There is no final judgment because for those in Christ, the judgment has already been done. So even if a Christian dies in some of these things, it's still not final judgment because uh, obviously Christ uh, paid the penalty where there is no judgment for the Christian. But that's just one example like a tsunami. Some people live through it. That's their warning. Some people died. This is their final judgment. God brought final judgment, rather. So when we look here in chapter 16, we're getting ready to read of these seven last plagues. The seven bowls full of the wrath of God, which then will correspond to uh, the same aspects of God's creation, which are mentioned in the trumpet judgments. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. Okay, this is where this angel pours out his bowl is on the earth. So when we go back and we look over here and we're looking at the the trumpet judgments <clears throat> we are finding that in the first judgment um, the first angel this excuse me this is in chapter 8 verse 7 the first angel sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and the green grass was burned up it was the first trumpet was hurled at the earth, the the judgment itself, the first bowl judgment is hurled at the earth. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Back in chapter 8, verse 8, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Now you see the difference that in the trumpet judgment, a third of the seed dies, but in the bowl judgment, everything dies. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Back in chapter 8, the third third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Again, the same correlations here. And then you get the fourth angel, and let's see where the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Back in chapter 8, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them Would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night would, and the night in the same way. Now, the fifth one this is interesting. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Now, when the fifth trumpet sounds, here's what happens. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven, which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was opened. And he opened the pit, and the smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. So out come these locusts, and these locusts have a king over them, a baden, a polyon, and they torment uh, men for five months. But you have the fifth bowl that is poured out, and in reference in the same reference there to the throne of the beast. You have the angel uh, who is in reference to the fifth trumpet, who is Apollyon, who is a Abaddon, uh, who, who's uh, in charge over all this demonic army that is being that is coming out upon the earth. And this fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened. And they gnaw their tongues because of the pain. So you have some correlations there. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its waters was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Back in chapter 9. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who have been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind, the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now, this sixth bowl is, again, in reference to the great river Euphrates. And what occurs thereafter is a gathering of a great army, as you just read in chapter 9. Gathering them to this place, uh, which is in the Hebrew called Armageddon. That has a lot of significance when you go back to the book of Judges. Um And again, we remember this, that everything that's in the book Revelation, I mean, primarily almost everything, is is taken from the Old Testament itself. It is taking what happened actually and literally in the Old Testament, and it is now applying it in a symbolic way to describe the victory of Christ over his enemies uh, at the final judgment. Now, they gather for the great war here in chapter 16, But you also read of this back in chapter 14 when final judgment is given there. You remember when the the angel swings his sickle over the earth after Christ reaps all the believers, the angel swings his sickle over the earth and uh, gathers all the clusters from the vine, as it's described, and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles, For a distance of two hundred miles. Now I was always taught uh, growing up that the battle of Armageddon occurs and it will be such a fierce battle when the Lord vanquishes his enemies that the blood will be up to the horses' bridles. Now that's not described in chapter sixteen, that's described in chapter fourteen. So fourteen is describing final judgment of the of by the Lord of the wicked. Chapter 16 is describing the very same thing that chapter 14 just described, which chapter 19 will also describe the very same thing. When you go through the book of Revelation and you ask yourself, wow, I'm reading of a a battle here, and I'm reading of a battle here, and now I'm reading of another battle here. Well, you got to sit there and think, how many battles are there going to be? And again, it's the same thing with the, the coming of Christ. How many times are they coming back? Well if we understand it as the book of Revelation as as a cycle of visions and each vision is describing the very same thing that the previous one did, just gives more detail, then these things make sense. When you read of a battle or this great final judgment of the blood coming up to the horse's bridle in chapter 15, you're reading of the very same thing in chapter 16 when the great army gathers before the Lord to, to make a war and the Lord vanquishes his enemies, which is the same thing you read in chapter 19, which is the same thing you read in chapter 20 all of these are overlapping and are parallel. So you have the sixth angel, which pours out his bowl of the wrath of God. This great army is gathered, and he describes, he saw out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, it's interesting that it would be... Like frogs. Is he talking about the repulsiveness of frogs and that sort of thing? Well, it very well could be because these are spirits of demons, um, as it's described here. So, and not only this, but when you read in chapter 16 here of these particular demonic spirits that are gathering this great army, is the very same scenario you're reading in chapter 20 when you have Satan himself, which is gathering a great army for the great day of the wrath of God. Again, they're parallel. They're not different wars. They're not different battles. It's the same battle, the same final battle, uh, which is being described here. And again, when when you're remembering what the book of Revelation is, its genre, what is the point in all of that? It, it, is, it is describing the glory of the victorious Christ over all his enemies. Is there literally going to be a great battle at the end? Well, what kind of battle would it be? You have all of God's creations that are gathered before him. All he has to do is, you're done. I mean, what kind of battle is it going to be? But if we understand it in the sense of when God gathers all of his uh, people uh, unto himself and he glorifies himself in them, which is the culmination of our salvation, by the way, and at the very same time you have him gathering and separating all the, the unbelieving and then judging them and casting them into the final judgment which is the lake of fire then these things tend to make sense because again the book Revelation symbolism is the rule literalism is the exception and and so we have to go to the more clear passages within the New Testament or even in the Old Testament to understand exactly what is happening here uh, in this particular book but you have this language of Christ that is being said here in chapter 15 or excuse me, chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Now, the seventh bowl is getting ready to be poured out. Now, this seventh bowl is describing the final judgment of all, just as chapter 14 did, just as chapter 11 did, And chapter 6 did. Again, you're having the same language uh, where every island fled away and the mountains were not found. That was back in chapter 6 as well. Verse 14, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Uh, And you have a gathering of people, uh, a great army there in chapter 6, with the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders, the rich and the strong and every slave and free man uh, who hide themselves in the rocks. These... All mankind, uh, and Peter uses very similar language talking about the coming of Christ being like a thief. Um, by the way, him saying that he's coming like a thief is not saying that he's coming in some secret rapture where nobody's going to know what happened. Uh, that's not within the Scripture. And again, when you look at the great rapture passage of First Thessalonians chapter four, when you have the Lord descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. This is a very public event. This is not some secret thing where nobody's going to know what happened. Uh, That is nowhere within the Scripture. But listen to what Peter says about the day of the Lord, in which the final judgment is being poured out upon all mankind. He uses the same language. In chapter 3 of 2 Peter, beginning of verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 24. This is what Peter is saying, but the the language is not of some secret rapture. It is of the final judgment when Christ comes back and makes all things right. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Uh, Is this some secret thing that happens? No, this is when the Lord comes back The earth itself is redeemed. The wicked are cast in the lake of fire and then the righteous inherit the earth as the Lord had promised. But it's using that language. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away. That's what we're reading here in chapter 16. What we're reading in chapter 6 and that language is used speaking of the coming of Christ here in chapter 16. Behold, I am coming like a thief. He's going to come at a time when you don't think he's going to. That's the idea. Not that it's going to be I'm going to gather you. Nobody's going to know what happened. Uh, how about no? So the seventh angel is got is ready to pour out his bowl upon the uh, upon the earth. So here's the description. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out from the temple, from the throne, saying, "It is done." Final judgment. What does he say? It's done. There is no more. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. Now, speaking of the great earthquake, we read of this also, I think, in chapter 6 as well. An earthquake is mentioned a number of times throughout the book of Revelation. So, again, we have to ask the question, how many earthquakes are there going to be that are so great and mighty? Maybe one. And each of these texts is describing the very same thing. That makes more sense. So, so great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Now we're, we're talking about Babylon. We were introduced to Babylon already. Babylon, when you go into the Old Testament, was obviously uh, one of the great empires of of past history, uh, led by Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, he is the one who um, uh, sacked Jerusalem and uh, deported all the children of Israel, at least Judah, into Babylon, deported them out. The Assyrians did it to the northern kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar did it to the southern kingdom. And we, we find a number of different prophets that are in Babylon, like Ezekiel, and, um, and some of the other prophets like Daniel, etc. Um who are and then but you find Jeremiah speaking of that particular event, you have Isaiah speaking of it, so that the people are gonna go into captivity. Habakkuk speaks of it, all of that. But you have Babylon that is the great enemy of the people of God. They're the 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 wicked nation that are gonna come in and and are gonna be used by the Lord in order to judge his people if you go back and you read Habakkuk. So it is a symbol of evil. It's a symbol of unbelief, uh, an enemy of God's people. And so you have that, that description being used in the book of Revelation to describe the very same thing. Now, you have this idea today, which uh, you will not find within the book of Revelation, that there's going to be this new one world order uh, kind of a thing where all the nations and everybody are just going to be uh, united together and there's going to be one king over them who eventually will be the Antichrist, etc., you know, that's not the idea here. If you have Babylon the Great, which is representing the entire world system, it's not that all the nations have to be united together uh, under uh, the same commonality as far as one, uh, you know, you, you read of this too. This is, this is actually very interesting to me. But when they have one currency and all of this sort of thing, that this is a, a sign of the end and um, of course, the nations uniting together or whatever. They don't have to be united in that way to be what's being described here. If Babylon is representing evil and idolatry and all of the things that we read of in the Old Testament, then it doesn't have to be that they are united together in that kind of a way. It only has to be mean that they are united in the same purpose as far as having one commonality, which is... They remain in their unbelief and persecute the people of God. That's happening even now. You have in America, people of God are being persecuted and slandered in various ways. You have in China, it happening. You have it in Africa, it happening. You have it in the Middle East, it's happening. None of these nations are united together under one banner or under one currency or under one leader. And yet they're all doing the very same thing. Because that's what the world system does. The world lies in the bosom of the evil one is what john describes they persecute the people of god so even now you have the world system that is still persecuting the people of god around the globe right now but they are not united in some world one world order of whatever's described by some of the premillennial dispensationalists that doesn't have to happen It only has to be that they're doing the very same thing now. They'll continue to do it until the very end. That's the idea. That's the point. But when the final judgment comes, the great city is describing a Babylon. It's split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Now, here's something to remember as well. We remember when we were studying on uh, the various views of the book of Revelation, we talked about preterists. Now, for a full preterist, he would look and he would see in chapter 16 here that Babylon is in reference to uh, Israel, uh, specifically the calamity that occurs here being in reference to the sacking of Jerusalem in AD 70 by Titus, where they finally broke into the city, they destroyed the temple, killed uh, many of the people, and destroyed the city. But again, the very thing that we talked about then was that the wrath of God that is described in the book of Revelation is not local to one city or to one country, but it is universal. And you remember what he says here. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. The cities of the Gentiles fell. If this is only in reference to AD 70, then only that particular city would be in reference because that was the only thing that was involved really In AD 70, when this occurred, the great thing, that that this great event that occurred when God brought an end to the sacrificial system. But you see here that the cities of the nations fell. Cities of the Gentiles. This is universal judgment here. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Uh, We read of his fierce wrath uh, also in... Chapter 14, which is Final Judgment, which is universal. You read of it again in chapter 19, but we'll get there. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Again, that happened in chapter 6, when chapter 6 described Final Judgment. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Now, we've read of this at least three times, within this one chapter, that whenever wrath was poured out, final judgment was poured out, that they did not repent. They did not repent uh, of whatever deeds, etc., as the language used there. Uh, He says here they did not repent of their deeds in verse 11. Um, You know, we wonder sometimes, what is it that the damned do? in hell. And you have various depictions of what they do. Uh, I know uh, growing up, and perhaps you've seen those two, those Jack Chick uh, tracks, and some of them that describe hell. And uh, of course, it depicts people uh, burning in literal flames and all of that. But you have depictions of demons being in hell that are tormenting people. And you have people over to the side that are trying to pray and receive Christ as their Savior, I'm ready to repent now, and blah, 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 after being in hell. If God is pouring out his final wrath at the end of this chapter, he's pouring out his wrath upon individuals throughout this chapter, and the language is that they did not repent so as to give him glory, they did not repent of their deeds, and they blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell, because its plague was extremely severe, This is an indication that even those, even the damned, the condemned that are in hell are not repentant. They are not repentant of any of their deeds, but they blaspheme God even more because of the pain that they are enduring being under his wrath. Will there be weeping there? Yeah. Will there be gnashing of teeth? Yeah. Does the weeping somehow represent that they're ready to receive Christ in that sense or trying to repent now of their sins? No. They blaspheme God because of the pain that they're enduring. That is a commonality of what the damned will do even in hell. They will not, oh, forgive me, oh, forgive me. What we're reading here is they blaspheme God and they don't repent because they can't repent. Because even us at this particular point, unless the spirit of God convicts the heart, we cannot repent before God. We don't want to because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. It is only when the Spirit of God regenerates the heart and brings about that heart change that we then truly want to repent and cling to Christ for our salvation. The damned do not do that. They blaspheme God. But you have final judgment that is described there. So again, you have this... the the period in between the first and second coming of Christ being described because we're reading of these seven bowls, which parallel the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets are going on in between the first and second coming of Christ. So obviously these would too. But you have the final judgment being poured out, not only upon the world system of Babylon, but talking about the the cities and the nations falling. Uh, this is a universal judgment that is now poured out by the seventh bowl. And then chapter 17 will once again start over again so you have in the book of Revelation again these are parallel visions throughout the entire book but are all speaking of the same time period in between the first and second coming of, of Christ these are not things that are yet to happen in the sense that everything here is future and we're supposed to understand the book of Revelation in a linear way that will be even more confusing and will lead into all sorts of weird ideas you have greater description, though, of how the Lord is is orchestrating. And well, let me say this. We talk about often that even for the believers, that God has a date, an appointed time in which he will bring that child of God home. He has already ordained the means and the day, the hour, the minute, the second as to as to when this will occur. Well, this is no different than for those that are under his wrath when the day of their their time has come and they still do not repent before the Lord and they still continue in their evil deeds, that the Lord uses various means within his creation in order to bring about uh, their demise out of this world and then placing them under his wrath where there is no opportunity ever to repent thereafter for now they are in eternity. So you see something about how the Lord works throughout the history uh, of, of now in between the first and second coming of christ that he is indeed the sovereign one who is sovereign not only of all of his own as to their salvation what goes on in their lives and the time when they will come home uh, to be with christ but also sovereign over all the unbelieving the great nations of the earth and the great empires of the earth and the time of the demise in which he will take the wicked out of this world and he has set a date in which he will judge the world of course by the Lord Jesus Christ who will come in flaming fire uh, dealing out retribution upon all those who do not obey the gospel which the apostle Paul uh, speaks of Um, so again final judgment and then it's done there is no more chapter 17 we'll start over again uh, this is some pretty amazing things, and it puts on display for us the sovereignty of God, the power of God, that regardless of what is going on on the earth and regardless of what enemies of God's people have come about, whether it's the world system uh, or it's the beast, perhaps one final um, one final ruler uh, or figurehead uh, who will persecute the people of God severely, or whether it's the Uh, false religions that are present within the world even now that persecute the people of God. Uh, Regardless that Christ is putting under his feet all of his enemies and he will indeed uh, conquer all of them for none can uh, hold back his wrath. None can thwart his will. He is sovereign. And when he determines that it is time whether individuals uh, the wicked individuals to leave the world, or it's time for the final judgment uh, when He will send Christ to the earth. He has appointed the time and he will absolutely perform it because you see in these in these bowls of wrath that are being poured out, none can stop them. There are none that can thwart the will of God. Uh, there are none that can cause anything to stop these or to delay them or any of that. They happen when God has appointed them to happen. And none can stay his hand, even on the day of final judgment. It will occur as God has planned and the hour that God has determined. And in that we can rest, and in that we can rejoice in the Lord that uh, though we receive uh, various things in this world, the struggles and and slanders, let's face it, here in America we don't face um, great persecution at all. Slander, being made fun of, or trying to be silenced, and things of that nature. But what is that compared to what our brothers brothers and sisters are, are going through uh, throughout the rest of the world? Well, they're actually dying. Um, but, I, but I'm not saying we don't endure a form of persecution. Of course we do. But at God's appointed time, He will vanquish all the enemies of His people, all those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot. All of those who reject uh, the offer of the gospel in Christ, all of those who blaspheme the name of God, he will bring about their demise and their final judgment at his appointed time. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Uh, again, putting on display the power of God and the sovereignty of God, for none can thwart his hand. And I love that language. Uh, That's said often in the Old Testament, that none can stay his hand, none can thwart his hand. uh, All of that. And those are things that we can also rejoice in when we look around and we see, well, isn't this going to, you know, trouble the church and and her mission and all of this sort of thing because of what's going on? Or what if this leader gets into office too? Well, what's going to happen then? What's it going to be like for the people of God? Well, here, here's what we got to keep remembering and preaching back to ourselves. That God is sovereign. God is in control. He's not like what the Armenians would say. The, one Armenian writer, Roger Olson, said that God is sovereign by right, but he's not sovereign in actuality, and that's nonsense. God is sovereign over every aspect of his creation, as R.C. Sproul says, which many of us have heard, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. They are all held together and sustained by the Lord, and they are all being brought to their intended end, all of creation. So regardless of what happens in the nation, the church will accomplish its mission because it's the Spirit of God that works through the people of God to accomplish His mission. And nothing will be delayed, nothing will be thwarted, because it's the power of God which achieves uh, all things. And that's why, even on the Day of Judgment, uh, or the day of reward for the believer, you find that the 24 elders in the book of Revelation are casting their crowns at the feet of Christ because their reward is His, because it's whatever was accomplished through them was all His doing, uh, because He is the sovereign Lord who has power over all. And the thing uh, that to, you know, we have to remember too is that even in times of great persecution, that is when the church purges itself of, of only nominal professing Christians And the true church raises up to perform exactly what the Lord has determined for it to do. And it's in the times of severe persecution that the church grows. Uh, And you see that without question with churches in the Middle East and in China especially. So let us rest then in these truths that God is sovereign and that at his appointed time, he will vanquish his enemies. But he calls upon the people of God to be faithful and to preach the good news of the gospel and to endure whatever may come, resting in the sovereignty of God. So we'll end there. Uh, we're a few minutes early, but we'll end there. And next time we will go into the sixth vision of the book of Revelation, which is chapters 17 through 19. Uh, so read those chapters, get familiar with them, and Go ahead and start looking at some of the parallels of those chapters compared to what we've already seen and even to what we will see in chapters 20 uh, or chapter 20, especially. So, thank you all for your attention um, and join us back on Sunday, uh, this coming Lord's Day, where we will once again jump back into our study of angels and demons, um, which is, uh, of course, part of our whole uh, series on systematic theology. Uh, we want to understand this rightly you know do people actually have guardian angels do they not have guardian angels uh what is it that angels do are there such thing as ghosts and i'll go ahead and tell you no but anyway we'll get to that um but anyway thank you for your attention i hope you all have a wonderful week and again uh on behalf of, of dusk and uh, my brother's children we have uh, all of our family we thank you for your encouragements Uh, for your prayers and your messages, all of those things. uh, They are indeed very comforting and very encouraging. So thank you again, and we love you all and appreciate you, and can't wait to see you on Sunday. Have a great week.